Welcome to episode two of Weekend at Crombie's. Our second movie is Phantom of the Paradise. Welcome all. My name is James Evans, Esquire, biological father to one, philosophical father to many. I'm here with my fellow podcast here. I am Hugh. My past is a mystery, but my work <laughs> is a legend. <laughs> and it is an experience, isn't it? It's, it's a, it's a uh, life-affirming um, experience to record with you, Hugh, uh, our James? thoughts on films that we enjoy watching and talking about. That was it, enjoy yes, might be too strong a word. No, but the, uh, <laughs> uh, the point of the podcast, we should describe it, films, we, uh, we're, so we are, we have our boilerplate, because we now got one, is two gentlemen philosophers unearth forgotten movies and raise them up to the light once more. Oh, that's beautiful, much isn't it? Like I think those, that. Yeah, that's what we that. have, yes. Much like those yeah. two guys raised up Bernie from the dead and dragged him <laughs> around, um, tying nicely into the theme of the podcast, Weekend at Crombies. Episode two, um, we're going to be talking about um, Brian Palmer's Phantom of the Paradise, which um, I chose, was was the, the film that I, I wanted to um, explore, shine up to the light, as it were. The very and first one you wanted to pick. <laughs> yeah, exactly, the very first one I wanted to pick, yeah. The film that I've been waiting to watch all my life. Um, so I'm going to go through the uh, plot points of the film and describe a little bit. So obviously, there will be some spoilers in here because I'm going to describe the actual film. Um, so Phantom of the, Par- uh, Phantom of the Paradise, it's a, a film by Brian De Palma, um, 1974. It starts with... A, we have a, a, a voiceover that uh, starts the film and it describes this particular rock producer stroke Svengali, I guess, really, who is called Swan, the world's most popular and famous and successful rock producer. And he is looking to launch a new rock palace come theatre called The Paradise. And what he wants is a a group or a talent singer-songwriter to um, perform at the opening night, as it were. It cuts then to uh, quite a jaunty 1950s-style musical piece by a group called the Juicy Fruits, who are It's very doo-wop. It is very doo-wop. I should point out that Phantom of the Paradise is a musical. A musical Um, horror comedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Whether it works on each of those levels, we'll come to, but it it is definitely a musical uh, of sorts. Um, The audience don't seem particularly interested until actually one of the band members starts fighting with them. Um, But this is where we we meet the eponymous phantom, I guess, of the film, a character called William Leach. I'm I'm correct, his name's Winslow Leach. Oh, yes, it's Winslow Leach, isn't it? Winslow Leach, yeah. Um, Who's very much a human kick-me-sign in every regard. (laughs) Yeah, he is, yeah. I mean, he's, a, he's an interesting character because he's, he's about nine foot tall and he's really gormless and um, he's, he's a bit of a... He's a bit of a really, isn't he? But, he wears these enormous glasses. He is absolutely yeah. um, guileless and, and clearly set himself up for a massive fall. Yeah, yeah. Which, he, which, he, which happens. Um, so he, uh, the Juicy Fruits finished the song. It cuts to a scene in a studio above the, the audience where we hear Swan for the first time talking to his... I guess it's his kind of lackey's rose 
Moody, I guess, really called. Is it Philbin? Philbin, who's yeah. The, Philbin who's the manager and basically saying, you know, um, I really need to find a new talent, etc., etc. The audience don't like the juicy fruits until Swan dictates to them that they should clap their particular performance, of which then the audience goes absolutely bonkers because Swan has directed them to do that. And this, this really is a very overt way of saying, look at the power that Swan holds. Yeah, we, we should incredible. say we don't actually see Swan at this point. We, no, see, we no. see Swan's POV and, mm. and then the power he holds. So they'd very much set up him as the Svengali, this mysterious Charles Foster Kane that controls the music That's industry right. to a great extent. And then Winslow Lee starts playing his um, one of one of the songs that he's written. He's playing kind, kind of a Burke Bacharach uh, Elton John. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, the lone piano that. player singing with his eyes yeah, closed. Yeah. But Swan Swan hears this piece of music and, and decides actually this is it. This is this is the new music. This is what I want to open the paradise. The music necessarily, not 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 specifically Winslow Leach. But what he doesn't realise, what Philbin doesn't realise, and what Swan doesn't realise is that it's not one song that he has. It's a it's a rock opera. It's a cantata that he has that is hundreds of pages long and Winslow Leach is not going to compromise on giving Philbin an individual piece of music it needs to be all of it or nothing and it's, and he's it's, obviously, a, it's a rock opera that's the story of Faust Faust yeah well, first correct. warning yeah. as the audience yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and it, it's not subtle, shall we say? Um, it, 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 it's it's a yeah, it's a rock opera of Faust. But obviously, he's 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 an idiot, Winslow. He doesn't really understand the mechanics of of popular music management or business, and he ends up giving Philbin the entire work um, that he has slaved over for years. And Philbin says, "Great, so um, we'll take this. That's fantastic. We'll get the juicy fruits to to sing it at the uh, the opening of the paradise, and then." Um, Winslow goes berserk, <laughs> to be honest, and grabs him by the neck and throws him around a bit. And he says, no one else is going to ever sing or play my music. And Philbin says, yes, OK, I'm sorry about that. He obviously is, is now tricking Winslow into giving him his music and say, look, we'll get back to you. Come and visit us in a short period of time. Swan will be in contact with you directly. And it kind of calms Winslow down and he gives him the the the, um, the rock opera. And that effectively is the, the end of the first kind of scene of the film as it were yeah and then so a few, few weeks later Winslow ambles up to Death Records studios yeah. and knocks on the door and says oh, where's, where's, my, where's my contract and basically just yeah. thrown out and say we never yeah. heard of you well, and what I like about this particular scene is that, um, it, it, yeah, he, he walks up to the receptionist, who's a completely disinterested uh, receptionist. She just doesn't care. And she's got a list. She, she's basically just, you know, ignoring him. But she's got a, a, a list of people who Swan doesn't want to ever see, one of which is Barbara Streisand. And it's in, like, it's in a little kind of drawer, and she's flicking through the names. It's Barbara Streisand, and it's Winslow Leach. She picks it out and says, I never want to see this person. Never let him in. It, and it's really it's quite funny actually so he can't be seen they won't let him in he leaves despondence and start but he doesn't quite realize that actually swan has just stolen his work he still thinks well there must be some kind of um mitigating circumstances here he's just forgotten who i am what i need to do is actually organize a meeting with him so that he can be reminded of who i am and then i'll obviously be able to perform the music at the launch of the, the it's then it then cuts to, um a scene at swan's mansion where leech is kind of creeping up um up to the front door as it were and what we find out here is as you go into this very grand um, house there are literally hundreds of um, wannabe singers um, all, all women um, all up this grand staircase around the sides they're everywhere basically and they're all singing at the top of their voice they're kind of screaming effectively 
preparing to sing Winslow Leach's um, uh, music. So they're, they're, he's there and they're all singing, and it's quite over the top, to be honest. It's, it's hysterical in many ways. And um, Winslow, Winslow picks one of the women pretty much at random, um, yeah. who fortunately happens to have the exact voice and sound he needs to be his yeah, exactly. muse and, uh, and to be yeah. wonderful. So um, so that was fortunate. But uh, yeah, yeah. she, her name Phoenix, this is, uh, yes. is, uh, is the singer. She's again, she's got stars in her eyes and wants to be a singer on, on Hollywood and what have you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she but she can sing Winslow stuff like no one else can. Winslow all of a sudden is you know you must sing my opera. It can only be you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is the first time we see Phoenix, who plays quite a big role in the film. Yeah. and it, I mean, there's quite a nice little duet that they that they sing at this point um, together. Phoenix gets is it gets closer to the actual um, a point at which the audition takes place. Um, what what happens is that again Winslow is um, accosted by some bodyguards um, and you know he's trying to persuade them yeah this is my music you know I just need to see Swan it it all will be resolved clearly there's been some mistake and you know they try and throw him out effectively Phoenix at this point goes in and it's a little sinister at this point because we can see the, the room that she goes into is Philbin again with in it you don't really see the kind of the, the, the detail of what's happening but clearly it's something untoward is happening in the room well Philbin's where, got his trousers around his ankles which which again it should be yeah. an alarm bells she she immediately comes out again and she refuses to partake in in whatever is going on in this particular room I think we can all kind of get an idea of what's happening so this this is to kind of, I suppose this is to indicate that Phoenix won't give up her moral viewpoint or her scruples just to get success yeah although it's probably it's a number it sets up a number of gags that probably don't age very well given they're all played for comedy but essentially in a kind of a a post Weinstein era is basically dragging a queue of young women in to be kind of casting couched by uh, Philbin and his cronies and I think it's fair to say that the film made in 1974 it feels like it's made in 1974 as well Uh, you know I wouldn't say it hasn't aged well but it it hasn't aged well Um, (laughs) um, but nevertheless it then cuts to a a very I mean I don't know how Winslow has managed this but it cuts to another scene where he is um, well there's there's a a group of um, I don't know, voluptuous women, I guess, on a, on a, on a bed, and they're all kind of talking to each other about how amazing Swan is. And it turns out that Winslow is one of these women, but he's dressed in in a, a woman's clothing. And this Swan work, walks in. It's the first time you see Swan. And to be quite frank, he's not what I expected. <laughs> he's he's, he's uh, he looks a little bit like a creep. He's really smarmy. Maybe that's the point. But I was expecting a kind of Richard um, Chamberlain kind of character. Yeah. And uh, what we got was Jimmy Cranky, really. It was <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what I was expecting to see, but maybe the point is that he isn't this incredible physical specimen. But we should, maybe, more... maybe this is time to divert into who Swan is as the actor, um, because yes, this but, is yeah. this is Paul Williams, um, who. Uh, is again a very talented uh, singer-songwriter. Um, very talented. He's Oscar winner as well. Yeah, he's got he's got a, had a great pedigree before this and after this. Um, yeah. But yeah, he uh, he also again as uh, when he wasn't playing um, singer-songwriters or doing Oscar-winning music, he played the part of Little Enos in Smoking the Bandit. <laughs> and Smoking the Bandit too. Yeah. So and, you can get it. Yes. Yeah. So Smoking the Bandit three. Smokey is the Bandit. 
<laughs> so and, that, that is that is yeah. Swan. That is Swan, and he he was littleness to bigginess. Um, so you and bigginess was a gigantic man. Littleness was the Jimmy Cranky part of him. He's he has quite a, a, a quite a, a high reedy speaking voice. It sounds very nice when it's sung, but it comes across as not particularly sinister when he's speaking. Again, he's a, he's a diminutive man um, with kind of the shoulder length blonde hair and looks a bit. Cherubic, I guess, is ways like an aging cherub. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And actually, in that context, it fits quite well in the in the tone and the context of the film, yeah. really, because we, you know, it, Faust is part of the, the the process of the film, and and as a Faustian character, he needs to play that kind of cherubic character with a bit of sinister yeah. edges around him as well. Anyway, Swan realizes that Winslow is is who he is. He's not a woman, and then the heavies come and take him on, and then these policemen find him all beaten up and. Um, you know, cranky, and they plant some drugs on him. And they've obviously been told by Swan, make sure that this person never studies this tension again. And the next thing we know is he is in the penitentiary, effectively. He's in prison. He's in a Swan sponsored prison where all the prisoners have their teeth removed, which which is an odd thing, but Winslow is no different. His teeth removed, but they don't see that, obviously. That would be quite grim. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a point at which we, we see he, he's effectively done for. Nothing he can do about it. He's lost his music. He's in prison. Um, so he now he now has these these metallic teeth um, and kind of a fairly dazed look in his eyes. So he's yeah. he's gone through the ringer uh, quite briskly, kind of playful yeah. laughs, but it's also fairly brutal. I mean, he's there whimpering, saying, "Don't take my teeth." Um, yeah. So yeah. It, yeah, I agree. The, the, the point the, the film is. is, is it is played for laughs, but it's very dark humour. So then what happens, it cuts to six months later, and we've been on the factory floor, as it were, and on the radio comes, um, I think, one of the songs that he's written, and the fact that Swan is, you know, this amazing piece of music is going to launch the paradise at the end of the week, and he just, he loses it, effectively. He goes absolutely berserk. I think, doesn't he throw a, a guard out of a window, and he runs down the conveyor belt, and somehow he manages to escape in a box. Yeah, um, again, once again, the, the, they replace kind of reality for comedy because he jumps in a yeah. box which then gets packed in a, in a van and the, van, yeah. the box falls out of a van just where he needs to be and he pops out of the box yeah so it's, oh, it's quite it's, well filmed as well because it's quite yeah. kinetic filmmaking in that context and he's basically running around um, trying to find um, w- w- you know trying to find Swan and, and, and tr- trying to figure out what to do next it's, it's quite it's quite fluid in that particular yeah. point but what he, he finds the, um, the factory which is producing all of his music um, all of the vinyl um, pressing for his music and um, I, I don't know what he's intending to do there it's not really described I think he's just he's a gog with anger he has, he's in a rage he wants to destroy he wants to destroy the, the, the records a security guard comes across him and in a blind panic shall we say he accidentally traps himself in the vinyl pressing machine and gets in, in very typical um, cliched Hollywood style gets his sleeve caught on the lever which turns the vinyl pressing machine on and then of course his face, his face I'm laughing but it, it's not particularly funny his face gets squashed in the vinyl pressing machine it's you know, hideously and, and there's blood everywhere and the security guard runs off like, oh what the hell are you doing he gets out of the vinyl pressing machine somehow I mean uh, you know I, I'm assuming that's fairly fatal but he seems to still be alive and he kind of the, he can hear the police cars in the background and he's struggling he gets out of factory he gets out of vinyl pressing factory he's on the you know on the floor he's scrabbling around and he's, the, the river's in front of him and he slowly just kind of falls into the river rolls into the river and then you think well that's the end of him then that's the Winslow yeah they, so they mention it in the, 
the newspaper cutting is, you know, the yeah. paradise is about to open, P.S. some um, dem composer has been yeah. killed. It, it, effectively, that's the end of Winslow, really, in, his, in the guise that we know him at that point. What we then see is it's cut to another kind of context where we're actually outside of the paradise now um this particular the the theater as it were this grand um uh rock theater this um beautiful um home to to rock opera as it were and again it's a point of view scene now so we hear like a darth vader voice and breathing in the background like a as, as um, we, we don't know who this person is, but they're kind of staggering toward the paradise. Um, they go past a number of kind of roadies who are standing outside, and immediately they get completely shocked by whoever this person is. Obviously, they're hideous figures, it were a little bit like the Phantom of the Opera, perhaps. They're like, oh my God, look at this guy, he's disgusting. And they all run off. And then again, this person who you're you're seeing through the eyes of, it's into the theatre, and he goes into the stage area, into like the costume costumery, I suppose. And he picks out he picks out a cape and uh, what looks like a battle of the planet style helmet. <laughs> yes. I think it's a really nice piece of production because it looks really effective and he puts it on. And this is the Phantom. It has an image. It has a personality now. And then it cuts to one of the favorite bits of the film actually, where we have a scene of the juicy fruit. Oh, the beach bums. The beach so the juicy fruits have now been renamed the beach bums, as it were. And they are rehearsing on stage of the paradise. And suddenly the screen splits. And this is a trend that Brian De Palma does in quite a lot of his films. So you have a split screen process where on the left hand side of the screen, you are following Phantom and planting a bomb in a, a stage prop to be a, a, a car, effectively, in the, in the boot of a car. And then he, he leaves that scene. On the right-hand side, you see the rehearsals going on on stage. Some Phantom leaves. You find that on the left-hand side of the screen, you get a lot of the, the backing singers talking. You get Philbin um, offending some women. And on the right-hand side, you rehearsals. And eventually what happens is that the car moves around from the left-hand side of the screen to the right-hand side of the screen onto the stage and it explodes to what looks like complete chaos and carnage and, and death and destruction, as it were. And you, you see Phantom in the corner of the theatre, and it cuts to Swan, and he's in the darkness of the and he's looking at what's happening on stage, and he, I think he realises something's up here. And as Swan leaves his studio, they accost each other. It's quite an interesting point, because effectively it makes him a deal, really. Yes, um, Swan is particularly cool under fire by this, because he gets accosted by this man with a bulging eye and an owl mask yeah. and black lipstick and a cape and yeah, he's just yeah. like oh hi Winslow black um, lipstick at this point black is a metal teeth and yeah, uh, so yeah. he really does look and, and he, can't, he can't talk either he can't Say, talk uh, he's it's, it's really quite hideous yeah and, and Swan is just like oh hello Winslow I've got a deal for you and he's very much yeah. kind of like yeah and I, I know I know I had you beaten up and your teeth pulled out for no particular reason but now I will make your opera and yeah. the, uh, I don't know, who's, I don't know who's, who's, who's worse though Swan for making the, the, the deal to, to Phantom or Phantom just going yeah yeah so basically it's taking the deal which is i will put all choice of whoever you want to sing your songs on stage so it will be your songs you will be the creative controller of that process so phantom quite likes that to seem find that there are auditions for this particular 
the role and you've got Swan and Phantom you know, overlooking the process. You don't see they're kind of they're like overlooking their puppet masters as it were. So this is where this is where Phoenix reemerges. Okay. So wisely she's chosen to audition where there are witnesses this time. But Phantom recognises and demands that she be given an opportunity to to, to sing and she does. And it's quite a funky tune, actually. Caught, caught up in your wheeling, kneeling. Um, and I, I quite liked it. I thought it was really... But it's an odd thing, because it kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit. So she starts looking at the camera, yeah. um, I, me and you, and singing to you, um, which, is, which is an odd thing in, in any context in the film so far, so that's quite interesting. Um, but the bit like, that caught me was the choreography of this song, because she, she oh, starts singing yeah. in, this, in this fedora that she flings to the floor so she can so she can you know fully emote and she's kind yeah. of bopping away and all the other singers even though they're competing with her they're bopping too because their singing is yeah. so good and she's so much caught in the song when she gets to the outro she bops yeah. away off the stage <laughs> and then she has yeah. to come back on and pick up her hat that is true I don't know where that came from. It, it was all—it was all going so well, and she just goes insane. When she comes back, and Phantom at this point is madly and deeply in love with Phoenix, but Swan says that he can can create a complete show for her that Phantom writes, and this is where uh, Phantom has to shine the. Co- Blood. So the contract is This is a patch here. This is like a thousand page contract. And it's all in a really arcane language like um just like all included should be deemed included. And it doesn't really make any sense and There's no joke about when he sees um what's this about my immortal soul? Oh that's a shipping clause. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. Maybe that was uh, funny in the mid seventies. So the, the 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 deal with the contract is that Phantom has one week to um, write a new part, a new rock opera, yeah. um, it, and uh, Phoenix will perform the rock opera. And basically, Phantom is okay. She's the only person who can ever sing my music. It can't be me. It must be Phoenix. And so he signs the he signs it, and then he's locked away in this kind of dungeon studio and we have a, 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 a I do like a montage scene so we have a montage scene he's now recovered his voice though he can now speak in a kind of modulated robot voice because yeah. the machine because uh, yeah. Swan has given him the, the means that so you so it's like more of a rhythmic Stephen Hawking type of sound <laughs> really I mean, it, it, it's not a staccato it, it, it works quite well. You could get a song out of that, I think, if you tried. Um, so he's locked in his room, and the montage is basically the clock is going, and it, it indicates the passing of time. A little bit like you know, the clause of the movie, actually. We're talking about centuries. We're talking about days and, and, and minutes, as it were. And you see him screwing away. So he's got. He's, he's working this beautiful, beautiful um, Carter. Except that, of course, he thinks that Phoenix is perfect. But the problem is, is that only Swan can be perfect. And so he had a problem with Alex to be the singer of the Phantom's music uh, and Paradise. So what's he telling the Phantom this, Miss Lois? He's effectively making plans to um, recruit another singer or a band to take Phoenix's place. Phoenix will simply be a backing singer because although she's perfect, nothing can stage Swan in that particular so we get a scene where Swan is round at the table and trialling these different bands and it's quite a nice scene because it's very theatrical it's not it's not kind of realistic you have a table and there's good lighting so the lighting goes up you feel a band and you hear a snippet of their song Swan basically says rubbish 
the light goes down, the light comes to somewhere else, and you've got a genre of music with a different band singing. So the first one might be country and modern, then you have some soul or crosses, um, then you have like a kind of folk song being sung. It's the same song, but it's in genres. At the very end, you get this character who um, is like a, he's got an electric dick. It's very camp and very over the top, and he just shoots the guitar. He's very glam rock. So, very glam rock, and Swan song goes, okay, yeah, very interesting. We don't know who this is at the moment, but... I tell you what, as he was going through all those selections, I was privately hoping he'd pick any one, but the final one he went with... <laughs> I was thinking there was a Motown one there, there was a country one there. I thought, yeah. oh, that'd be quite interesting. But oh god, he's yeah. going for the glam rock yeah. caricature. Yeah. But anyway, I think it's, it's quite a good scene. It's quite an interesting and entertaining scene. It's totally over the top. As um, is, as is Beef himself. He's intentionally over the top, and yeah. he's completely ridiculous. Incredibly, um, he's incredibly um, egotistical. He's incredibly uh, needy. Um, he's a kind of like a character where he has to only have orange or green M and M's in a bowl, for example otherwise you'll storm it it's that kind of process um, so well, in, in, the, in the Phantom of the Opera um, kind of comparison this is the Carlotta this is the prima donna of the opera uh, that who gets okay. the song yeah, yeah it's exactly it um, finds out that Swan actually has stolen his work um, he's stolen the final the final pages of his computer without him knowing and Swan crept in and stole it all um, and he, he he's you know completely Agently angry at this, and at this point, his dungeon studio has been bricked up by Swan, so he's trapped in. So he has, he gets into one of these rages that are completely over the almost um, extravagant. Opens the door to his studio and realises that he can't actually get out because it's been bricked up. It, it, it cuts to Beef, who is preparing his opening night, and you hear this incredible scream in the background. It's obviously you know, it's obviously fan, and then the next thing is that the guard. Head, and somehow he's broken through this brick wall and he's on the loose in, 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 in the paradise. Beef is having a shower. It's a good psycho homage. Yes. Beef is having a shower and um, hears Beef sing his lyrics and the, you, you see him in, in the shower and, you know, his, the curtains are there and then um, Fatim draws back and he's got a plunge. not a knife, he's a plunger. So it's a plunger to the mouth, to Beef's mouth and says, look, you know, no one, no one, no one other than Phoenix is ever going to sing my song. So, you know, if you sing them... I'm going to kill you, and it obviously freaks Beef out. But um, and he runs off. And he's saying, "I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. This is ridiculous." But Philbin persuades him to perform by basically promising him drugs. Effectively, <laughs> so, so this is what happens. So, so he, he, he ends up doing it anyway. He ends up going on stage, um, and uh, this is the, the, the best bit of the film, actually, um, because yeah, it, what, it cuts to the opening night. The stage production is absolutely brilliant. So you, you've got this hugely kind of gothic Transylvanian imagery with like castles and thunder and lightning, and the 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 the, the, the new band will be undead come on stage with their sword guitars. Yeah, I'm assuming the crowd are part of the gag because otherwise they're not particularly yeah, worried exactly, that the yeah. parts of yeah. them being cut off. The idea yeah, is that they cut off lots of bits of the crowd yeah. and construct a Frankenstein's monster that comes up and lives as beef. You know, he goes, he goes full camp, full glam rocks. It's the song. It's quite a good song. He's learned it, and obviously, fan realizes that. Hang on a minute, this isn't Phoenix. What the hell's going on? And um, he he fires an electric arrow, which is like in the bulbs, as it were, um, in the in in the kind of on the beef and kills him. 
um, he gets electrocuted. He's, he's on fire on stage and he's burning up and the audience are lapping it up because they think it's part of the the production, as it were. And everyone's like, yeah, this is the best thing ever. Whoa, save it. So Philbin and Swan then basically say, right, okay, Phoenix, you've got to go and see because someone killed Beef so that you could sing. <laughs> so he has to go out. She has to go out there. And she sings this kind of oddly melancholic slow song. Lap it up. They love it. They cannot. It's all souls last forever. So we need never fear goodbye. Isn't that, isn't that touching? <laughs> and yeah, they love it. This sparks a slight change in feeling as well. So she experienced the adulation of the crowd. It's a drug to her. So she then can't get enough of it, really. So we see Swan and Phoenix in their dressing room afterwards, and Phoenix is like, I want to feel that again. I, want, I never want to give that up. And Swan says, what would you do for me? I'd do anything for you, she says. I'd do anything. Just give me that crowd again. So what you see there is she has gone from that very moralistic individual, that individual that has principles to someone who, I will do anything in this context, but I need relation. And very quickly they become like, I mean, this happens in the space of an hour, effectively. They become lovers. Atom tries to her. She doesn't believe that he is actually Winslow Leach. She, she thinks he's just a madman. So they're up on the roof of the theatre and she's getting freaked out. He, he's, he's pleading, this is me, Winslow. I wrote these songs. She's like, what the hell are you talking about? Let me go. The audience love me. She runs and she gets into this limousine with Swan and Fulton. Now, as phantoms go, poor Winslow doesn't have the moves of the phantom. He doesn't have the, the canoe underneath the, the, uh, the sewers and the candles and everything. The phantom kind of follows them to Swan's mansion and he see, he, again, he's up on the roof and he's He's got this. He's in this kind of roof window, as it were, and he sees Swan and Phoenix. Um, well, having a bit hanky panky, I suppose, is the best way I can describe it. It's not, it's not particularly explicit. Let's not, you know. Yeah, that's that's hanky panky is the best that they can do. Yeah, it's just sort of like yeah, fully, yeah, fully exactly, clothed, yeah. rolling around on a large yeah, bed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and obviously, you see, one is where the, the Phantom is watching them as well, I and mean, he's lapping up. He's absolutely loving it. And, and Phantom is effect. He's distraught. He tries to kill himself. Um, well, he, he does a good go at it. He, he drives a knife into his chest. Yeah, exactly. So Phantom is, is there. He's, he's wanting to kill himself. He, he stabs himself in the stomach. This is where Swan comes out. And um, oddly, Phantom isn't dead. He's thinking to himself, why, why aren't I dead here? And Swan tells him that actually he's signed a pact with Swan. Uh, he signed his soul, as it were. He's signed it in blood. He can't die. The only way that Phantom can die is if Swan dies, because Swan himself has a similar pact, although at this particular point we don't know who with, although we can imagine who it might be with. Um, brackets open, the devil, brackets closed. That was, um, that was the, so, the first hint we had that Swan himself is not the devil, um, which I assume, was assuming up to this point. Turns out Swan also yeah. has a deal with the devil. So anyway, Phantom, Phantom can't kill himself, so um, that's that's the end of that. He has to just kind of deal with the fact that he's going to be there forever um, until uh, Swan dies. So um, one of the kind of key points moving forward now is that uh, Swan's Phoenix to perform at the, the following night's performance. I think it might be the following week's performance. Um, and it's going to be going to get married live on TV. Um, and it will be a huge, you know, wedding of the, the year, as it were. And then she'll perform the song. But actually, Swan has a, uh, a more dastardly deal. And actually, what he wants is to kill her because he believes that the ratings that he got from Beef's murder live on TV would be doubled if Phoenix was murdered as well. And so at this point, you see 
they're kind of preparing for the wedding as it were and Phantom has again broken somehow he keeps breaking into Swan's studio which is ridiculous you'd think they're like security he keeps breaking in and he finds he finds video footage of himself signing the contract with Swan and then he finds footage of a younger Swan although not much younger by the way he looks but a younger Swan in the bath wanting to kill himself thinking about killing himself because he doesn't want to grow old because he thinks his beautiful looks are worth preserving and in that particular context then all of a sudden yeah yeah, he is really yeah I know he's he's looking at himself in the mirror and the mirror version of himself starts talking to him and says oh so you want to be young do you well that's brilliant I can I can help you with this and he ends up signing his own contract with the devil or himself at this particular point not quite sure whether it's hallucinations or whatever but it's actually happening in that context well, this, so you this see him sign that. Yeah, up. this is the Dorian Gray part of the stories. So we've had Faust and it Phantom is, of the Opera, and now Swan yeah. will stay forever young, but he can never be photographed because that will show his true face. And yeah, he's made his own the, pact. Yeah, and the video footage of the scene of Swan and his mirrored self has to be kept under lock and key. It can never be destroyed because the moment that it's destroyed is the moment that he will become his true age, which is the very picture of Dorian Gray kind of process, really. Yeah. So Phantom well, obviously yeah. has realised this and yeah, he's like, oh. Hey, well, oh. the video track has something very incriminating. Like, don't watch this and don't destroy it. It, it contains my darkest yeah. secret. It's something very yeah, obvious. Exactly. Well, things, you know, yeah, don't press the red button, as it were. In which case, you have to press the red button. So, yeah. you, I think to myself, I would have labelled it something like, I don't know, summer, summer family home videos, nineteen forty-five. Not, not do not destroy this. <laughs> it contains um, the source of all my power. <laughs> He finds it, he destroys it, he burns the studio down, and then he notices on some of the security cameras that there's an assassin in one of the royal boxes or up in the stanchions. He's preparing himself to shoot Phoenix live on television whilst they're getting married. So whilst Phoenix and Swan are getting married, and Philbin is playing the priest here, which is quite interesting as well. This this, who looks like a kind of Brazilian person, this Brazilian um, assassin, got a big long beard and a bushy hair, and he's in a like a black polo neck yeah, the proper I will, assassin I will, yeah, I will, I will say though in, in, in nitpicking this assassin's gun is rubbish it's a tiny little <laughs> pistol it's no it's day of the jackal it's not like a high powered rifle you'd pick someone off with no. it's a teeny little gun that clearly was the best of props department could come saying we need a gun but it nevertheless takes him about 45 minutes to put together. Oh, yeah, there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of gun-building sequences there. There's a lot of gun-building, yeah, there is. I don't know whether it's real time or whether it just keeps him mad, but there's a lot of gun-building. And so then, obviously, um, Phantom realises this, and he's running through the theatre, which, again, is nicely filmed because the camera's behind him, and you get a sense of the speed that he's running quite nicely. It then cuts to this kind of this melange of um, scantily clad women on stage who are preparing for this extravaganza of rock opera in the kind of like they're warming the crowd up as it were the kind of pre the pre um, the pre-performance kind of warm up and the, you know these, these women are all dressed as um, they're all dressed as kind of I don't know I suppose songbirds or sparrows aren't they in the sense yeah. of that they're record label and they've all got these hats on with beaks sharp beaks and they're you know they're in their kind of underwear effectively and there's music really funky and everyone's having a good time and there's a guy in the audience who's having a particularly good time as well and he's dancing stage and all this kind of stuff happens and then you've got Swan and Phoenix they arrive Phoenix emerges into the audience, from the audience onto the stage, but Swan emerges from the actual stage itself, comes up from underneath the stage on this platform with Philbin as the priest, and Phoenix says, oh, this is brilliant, great, we're going to get married, 
fantastic, which can cut the assassin, only for Phantom to burst in, knock the assassin out of the way. He fires the gun and it kills still in the prison, uh, shoots him in the head. And we realise at this point that Swan is wearing a silver mask, obviously to hide the fact that his face is basically melting because um, he didn't effectively hide the video of himself signing a contract with the devil. Um, yeah. Chaos ensues on the stage. Nobody knows what's going on. Phantom runs down quickly. You see him on the stage and he gets one of these hats from one of the, 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 the kind of party girls who are who are the dancers and he stabs Swan. He stabs Swan um, and maybe that's the end of Swan but not before he to see his face and his face is all melting and he's like no, uh. and um, Phoenix says well why? Why have you done this? And he says I want your voice. I want your voice. She's perfect but she can never be perfect in that context because I'm perfect as it were. And at this point this this guy from the audience is the first time you've ever seen this person. This guy from the audience is having a bit too much fun. Notices what's happening. He grabs another hat from one of the the girls and stabs Phantom but of course at this point we realise that his suicide stab from earlier has actually ruptured and reopened because Swan is now dead so he's lying there dying on the floor as well we know he's going to die Phoenix and his, his mask falls off as well Phoenix goes over to him and realises that actually this is Winslow the final scene is effectively them arm in arm Winslow is dead and Phoenix is crying her eyes out. And it's a fairly melancholic end to the film, I have to say, but maybe an act end to the film. So, um, and then, Philip, the, the person singing us out uh, into the credits is Paul Williams, who was Swan. Um, yeah. When he sings very nicely, as I've said, but it's the, it's villain, the villain gets the final song. Yeah, he does. Yeah, uh, quite. Like, yeah, that's. I, th- I like that. I think that is uh, that's counterintuitive. And yeah, he, he gets the final song. I mean, you know, he's the most interesting character in the film. Yeah, I think, yeah. So, so that I think we have uh, successfully recapped the plot of Phantom of the Paradise. We'll uh, return to you as we analyse and take a deep dive into what it all means. Welcome back. Where, um, where to begin with this? Where to begin well, with Phantom of the Paradise? Um, I, I think I'll, I'll probably open with saying, as yeah, this is podcast number two, I think a good attitude to take to all the films is give them all a good chance, and yeah. there's, there's virtue in everything. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I'm trying not to rip holes in this one. So, so here's also the thing. So, I, I my, my view of the film is, I, 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 have, I, have, I have mixed feelings about it. I think it is. I think it really. How, how am I going to explain it? I'm lost for words. Yeah. Words because the film is completely insane. Um, it is both ramshackle, chaotic, nonsensical. It makes it, it literally from one cap scene to another madcap scene without any real sense of pacing or plot development or character development. It's completely all over the place, but it's also very kinetic in its style. It flits from being tonally very comedic and pantomime-like to very dark and disturbing, often in the same scene, um, which is really disconcerting and discombobulating. I find I I found the film a a very interesting experience to watch. The story is an old story. It's it's something that has just been updated for the context of that particular time, and it is very of its time as well. I don't necessarily think that's a problem, but I think that you've got you've got this a combination of factors which creates this this 
jumble of ideas that doesn't always work particularly, but it's just, it's just it's just totally mad. I mean, I'm sorry I'm not being very more eloquent, than that, but it's just mad. <laughs> Let's look at this in its various constituent parts. It's a it's a musical, a horror, and a comedy. To take the yep. musical side, you are not, I understand, yep. a big fan of musicals. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm I'm not a big fan of musicals. I I find I find them I find them very um, irritating, to be honest. Um, I tend to find that the, the music in musicals I don't find particularly interesting, and they 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 move me away from focusing on what's actually happening in the film. Having said that, there are some musicals which I find that I can bear and they tend to be musicals that where the music is part of the actual story rather than people breaking into song when they're walking down the street for no reason whatsoever I believe what you're talking about and, there is uh, di- this, diegetic yeah, music exactly yeah and th- this film falls into that yeah. the music is stage driven it's on the stage it, so I don't mind that so much I can get that I don't mind films that have music in it I just find musicals themselves a barrier to actually enjoying what's going on in the story itself <laughs> what I would say about the film though is that in almost no instances the music the music is 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 it's not very memorable no again i i don't i cannot recall any of the songs <laughs> no conversely i am a big fan of musicals i like stage yeah. and screen musicals a yeah. lot um yeah. and yeah as a musical for this for me failed quite badly i uh, there was again they say you've got to you know you've got to have something that leaves the audience humming as they go out of the theater or, or tapping their toes to there was nothing in here um they get, I think it's because it's very varied. Like I say, it starts with doo-wop, it goes to Beach yeah. Boy stuff, there's yeah. glam rock there's a bit in of there. There's, in a, yeah, there's yeah. a bit of everything in there, and that yeah. makes it very inconsistent. There's, there's no yeah. total food path. And again, the, as we say, the composer, Paul Williams, is a very successful and a very good composer. He's done some good musicals, but, but, but it's it felt I mean, really bad as musicals. And like I say, it wasn't something you can... You can uh, Remember, subsequently, actually, yeah. I've listened to the soundtrack on its own a few times, and it's a little bit. I, I liked it. I, um, I, I warmed a yeah. lot more to the musical when oh, I didn't have okay. the movie getting in its way. There's some nice songs in there, but still, nothing that's above an average good song. There's a song you no, can enjoy, yeah. but it's no, nothing, no, I think the, the the best song for me is is the scene where Phoenix is. Um, uh, she's she's auditioning for a part uh, in the rock concert and she does that mad dance and dances off the stage. <laughs> oh, that's quite a funky tune and it's well it's well filmed. Yeah. And um, it, you know the, the choreography makes it, I guess, really. But it's just it's nice. But you know, and also each song is about fifty seconds long. Yeah. They're not really songs. They're, they're snippets of, of noise in the film. Really, I felt the songs were too long. I thought, well, let's, let's begin with the the the, the juicy fruit song. I yeah, didn't. That, like, that was that went on forever. It went on forever, and it seemed like again, uh, Brian De Palma thought this was a song worth going on forever with because I thought it was initially it was going to be showing how bad this song is, how much he needs a new sound and a new artist. But clearly, the length of time and the performance they put into it yeah. indicates they think this is a song that you'll like as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not no. so sure about that. No, I, I think I think that the length of the song was indicate that Swan has control of the audience effectively okay. because n- none of the audience applauded after the song finished it wasn't until Swan said I want you to applaud that they went absolutely berserk and they're yeah. clearly obnoxious as well yeah. so I, I thought it was a the Juicy Fruits have passed their prime they're not popular anymore but it doesn't really matter yeah well, okay. In that, in that case, you may be doing that may be good filmmaking, but in the, according to you know, to the rules of musicals, that's a terrible opener. Then <laughs> you don't open with a long, yeah, yeah. boring you, song. You don't want to open a musical with that, though, do you? Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Think, yeah. Oh, this musical starts with the worst song in the whole film. <laughs> uh, so I think, yeah, I mean, that, in that case, it, again, and 
again, even the ones, you know, like Winslow Solo, they're, you know, they're not really ones that, that, that catch you as sort of the ones we will hum on the way out. And, uh, yeah, I think... Um, no, they're not really. As a, so as a musical, it's not working. I think you mentioned about the staging being quite kinetic and being quite quite exciting. For me, the songs, the, yeah. the, all the performances were very static. They were all being performed, as I say, diegetically. They were all really? happening in the real world. Yeah. And it was like the juicy yeah. friends are on the stage and we are the audience watching them on stage. Winslow sat at his piano and the camera yeah. went round him, but essentially we were just watching a guy at a piano. Everything, because it was being performed yeah, as if it was a performance. Because I actually, um, we might come to this, you know, other, other musicals of its time. Time, like the Rocky Horror Show, um, yeah. I've watched some of their yeah, um, yeah. things to refresh my memory, and those musical numbers are much more dynamic. The camera is zooming around a set, following its people. They're not like they're performing on stage, which is funny because Rocky Horror was a stage mm. show turned to a film. This was a film, yeah, and it, it does nothing yeah. that yeah. You know, a, fi- a, film, show, yeah. a film can do. It, um, a you know, film can camera yeah. can go anywhere, and this didn't. It just had a stage and a people and performances. So. It's an, I think as a musical it's kind of dull and it's not musically successful so that's that's strike one for me <laughs> well I, I would add to that although I don't think that the music in it is successful I disagree with you about the production of the musical aspects of the film okay. so my favourite scene in the film is the opening of the um, uh, forced Faust uh, rock opera, as it were, okay. where the, 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 and I actually love that. I think it got a real energy from the audience. It really felt like there was an, it was a, a live audience. You had the performers on stage, and it was very theatrical, very over the top. Um, I really, I really like that. But then I'm not as. Um, I'm not as well versed in the musical canon as you are, for example. So I, I, I felt that it was it was trying to do justice to the stage production, but not necessarily trying to do justice to the music that was being portrayed on that stage production, as it were. Because Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma is a is a is a he's known for his kinetic filmmaking, his stylistic yeah. fil- filmmaking. He's not necessarily, and he's also he's known for his staging. So in a lot of his films, like Carlito's Way, you have or Blowout, for example, you will have a camera that follows an individual for a long period of time in an incredibly long cut. I'm thinking of Carlito's Way, where you have Al Pacino um, in the Grand Central Station toward the end and the film goes uh, that particular cut goes on for maybe six or seven minutes as he yeah. walks around the station and in um, Blowout the scene that just follows um, I think it's John Travolta in a fish market throughout the process and it's really brilliant and there are elements of that in De Palma's work here but I think it's an early De Palma work and what he's trying to do is he, he's finding his style it certainly feels like an essay in terms of yeah, someone yeah. seeing what works. Um, yeah, he doesn't get it all right. Has he ever done? A, did he ever do a musical after this? Um, he has produced some operas. Okay, but he's never but directed not, a screen not films, musical. Though. No, that may be he's discovered what didn't work. No, not, not for my knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's that so means, that's the musical that's aspect. Musical. I think we have a little disagreement there. Perhaps. I think we do, but we're allowed to disagree. A multitude of opinions are allowed. So, in terms of the horror aspect of it, yeah, this yeah. I thought. In best. terms of the horror, the horror aspect of it, yeah, absolutely. I, I thought I thought it was quite a macabre, um, kind of Grand Guignol style um, theatrical production, which worked really well in the horror in the horror kind of vaudeville approach. Really, I, I really like the over top over it was gruesome when it needed to be gruesome, yeah. I thought. Um, it was 
macabre when it needed to be macabre. It was dark when it needed to be dark. And it had that kind of almost like a phantasmagorical approach to it, which I, I, I never quite felt sure what was going to happen and I like that in horror yeah. because you need to be on the edge a little bit yeah well, see, but this, again, this is reversed because you, you like horror a lot more than I do um, and I'm much more versed in it uh, now for me yeah. um, what worked for me the, the look of the phantom was very good they, they've got the, the, the owl mask the metal teeth the black makeup the cape and they've, they did a very clever yeah. thing where he's yeah. basically got one good eye and one bad eye so his face is always yeah. turned to the good eye he's seen and they've got a magnifying and glass for over the eye patch yeah. So this enormous eyeball is very, very creepy. Um, and whenever you see him yeah. like that, it's not pleasant um, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, there were other things. Um, for one thing, there was I, there was no sinisterness around the Phantom for me because he basically just walks into the theatre um, and, yeah. and everyone dives out of his way. And if you yeah. get it, we're going to compare it to Phantom of the Opera. The idea of Phantom of the Opera was there's this weird thing that's been happening at the theatre for years and years and years, and nobody quite yeah. knows: is it a man? Is it a ghost? Yeah. I mean, here it's quite tactically a man who's, who's, who's come yeah. in and started messing this up he's actually a terrorist um, yeah. and, yeah. and that and for me it's very obvious who it is as well yeah. very quickly yeah there was yeah. I mean really I'm going to get into the whole now plot wise of two of the Faustian thing you see the origin story and then it's very linear you see the origin story you see the bad stuff he does and it concludes whereas if you're yeah. going to tell like a horror story a ghost story surely you start with the weird bad stuff and then you find out what it's all about um, mm. it, you know if it begun in the paradise mm. and you know People, the juicy fruits are getting blown up and beef's getting electrocuted and this kind of stuff and no one can quite pin who's behind it that to me is a lot scarier than just mm. Winslow Leach who's had a terrible time of it and then suddenly decides to take revenge mm. uh, in a very linear way um, and mm. this comes back to the whole actually yeah. the, the idea of the plot wise in terms of the horror and the kind of the, the, the moral horror of it is that Winslow yeah. signs his Faustian deal you know, where he does it in blood and he's trapped forever about halfway through the film when he's already pretty messed up and hasn't done anything wrong apart yeah. from being naive yeah. he, you know, he gets beaten up yeah. he gets his teeth ripped out he gets his work stolen and he gets his head pressed and that's and he gets his voice destroyed <laughs> and he's already and he gets his work and then he gets betrayed by, by Swan a lot and then he decides to do the Faustian yeah. deal now to me and then, and then he gets rejected by Phoenix as well yeah yes now to me the Faustian deal you do at the beginning to get all this stuff like he, you know he should have been yeah. this naive yeah. songwriter who makes a deal with the devil so he can get it and it turns out this devil will betray him and destroy him and he turns out into the phantom whereas there's no moral element to it because yeah. um, Winslow is already a mess and has nothing to lose so he's kind of you know, he sounds over his soul well, already very messed up yeah. um, and also but again, I think that's quite tragic and that, and that that, that forms part of that narrative as well. So I, I agree. It, yeah, in, in the Faustian pact, as it were, you, you would you would sign that to get the good stuff, yeah, effectively, yeah, yeah. and then it would come back to bite you, I guess, really. But in in this context, although it, it's it's Faustian in its in its approach, in its ideology, I guess, I think the issue the issue that I have with with what you're saying there is that it, what it's trying to do is is this this Winslow Leach character is he's pathetic. Yeah. He is he's tr- he's downtrodden and he. He, he almost deserves everything that's coming to him in many ways. And what what happens to him is that in the end, he has literally no choice but to sign the contract because there is literally he has nothing else. He has absolutely nothing else. And I find in, in, in terms of horror 
tropes of horror mythos, and that's quite a tragic approach. It's bleak, and in the in, and and that's horrific. Yeah. So I quite like the fact that he you get to the point where he's at the lowest ebb, and there's nothing he can do, and the only thing really that he can do is the thing that's the worst thing that he can do, which is sign this contract, and he has to do it because he has no option. It comes back down to this idea, I guess, really, of the the two the two the two kind of moral centres of the film, one of which is Winslow Leach from The Phantom, and the other one is Phoenix, really. And they both start from certain places and end up in different places, which is also another trait of horror films as well, that you have to have this kind of moral viewpoint yeah. of, of what goes on. And if you, if you in some way... Um, play with that moral viewpoint you're going to have comeuppance now in this context Phoenix has her comeuppance by losing Phantom and by losing wealth and fame and, and, and Phantom has his comeuppance because he dies at the end but the point of that process is for me there's two quite distinct arguments in the film and it's about artistic integrity which I think is quite a clear metaphor that runs through it Phoenix has integrity but when she tastes success she she loses it all. She loses that artistic integrity, but she gains success. Phantom, or Winslow, he's wedded to the idea of artistic integrity, but suffers because of that artistic integrity. So you get two different perspectives of someone selling out and suffering and someone having artistic integrity and suffering and that to me is the tragedy of the film and that's why that element of the horror works really well there's one particular quote that, that, that um, Winslow Leach says to Phoenix right at the start of the film when he goes into the mansion and they're doing the auditions and they meet for the first time and they sing together phantom said winslow says to phoenix um that was beautiful you're the best singer i've ever heard you're made for my music and phoenix says well you're not just saying that are you and Winslow replies, I would never let my personal desires affect my aesthetic judgment. And actually that runs through the process of the film because he, in many ways, his, his aesthetic artistic integrity remains because Phoenix is the only person he will allow to perform his music. And it's because of that that he dies. And she, is the only person who is allowed to perform his music and it's because of that that she loses her integrity and I like that about the film yeah that's a good way of putting it I think that, that's put it better than the film did in fact but I, I, I take your point the horror the horror aspect is the strongest part of the film yeah because uh, yeah. now we can come to the, the comedy strand um. <laughs> well, okay so again I think we're going to have different views about this I comedy isn't necessarily my favourite genre of, of, of movie either and that's not because I don't like comedies per se but I find that quite comedy is very hard a good comedy is a rarity I think yeah. um, and you can have comedies funny and you can have comedies which are like this is a bit weird but I, I'm going with it because it's it, I, I find the process quite funny so you know there, there aren't jokes in the film particularly but it is comedic in its style so over the top so that you have characters that are inherently comedic in it Philbin is a comedic character I mean he's a nasty character but he's a joke effectively Beef is a comedic character he's there for a laugh effectively but he isn't he, he isn't He's the he's the butt of the joke, I guess, really. But but there there aren't jokes around what he's saying. Phantom is in many ways a comedic character, although he's a tragic character as well, and he's a horrific character. But he's so over the top and absurd. His screams are so guttural yeah. and ridiculous that it can only really be funny. Um, I actually 
loved the humour in the film. I found myself I found myself laughing out loud on a number of occasions, not because something happened that was specifically funny per se, yeah. but because of the audacity and the over-the-topness and the hyperbole, particularly around Beef. His character was so over-the-top, but so deliberately over-the-top, I think. I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a misstep or a misalignment. Brian De Palma asked uh, and the actor to play B in the most outrageous way and he has some neat lines I mean, he tells Philbin at one point to dry up Tubby yeah. whilst he's talking to him about his performances you know he, he, there's some unexpected processes in there which I really enjoyed in that but I get the sense that maybe that's not your perspective <laughs> it's interesting you went you went with Beef because that was one of the things I made a note of is that to me Beef again it's one of the things that definitely sets the age of the film um, he seems quite Again, to me, he seems quite a mean-spirited caricature, as in the writing of him is is mean-spirited. He's he's clearly they wanted someone who was kind of a glam rocker and this kind of stuff. But I think I think the people who who created it, the production team or the writers, didn't quite know what a glam rocker was, so he's just the idea of one. Um, and again, yeah. he's 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 very much like he's you know he's um he's sort of a lisping, limp-wristed prima donna. Um, he's played yeah. you know very camply, um, but not kind of like with any kind of um affection or, 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 or an admiration of this he's just played as kind of a camp joke um, and he is a camp joke yeah, he yeah, but, and, but, but yeah he's a camp joke but he gives as good as he gets in the film I mean he, he has a comeuppance until <laughs> he gets and, and, zapped with an electric uh, yeah, yeah he has his comeuppance <laughs> But he, he he doesn't lie down and take it. He is he has agency in the film. He has quite a small part in the film actually in the whole scheme of things. But he looms large over it. But I, I do. I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think that he's 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 an archetype actually in the film. He isn't there to. He isn't there to build any real sense of character development within that particular within that particular process. He's there to move the plot along. Yeah. And he's there he's there as a symbol of an extreme version of what I think Brian De Palma is trying to say about the music industry at the time. So he is that extraordinarily extreme, over-the-top representation of all of what was going on in progressive rock and glam rock at that time. He is intended to be that cipher. And so he has to be completely empty. But he also has to be the most over-the-top that he can be. Otherwise, the cipher doesn't work. No, yeah, that's fair enough with that. Um, yes, boom. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair enough with that. I'll uh, I'll give you that. But again, it's interesting. Again, uh, without uh, it, well, I'll, I'll swing now into the the, uh, the most obvious comparison with this film being the Rocky Horror yeah, Show. Because yeah. um, yeah. these, I don't think either one must have taken from the other because they're so synchronous. What Rocky Horror came out in '73 on the stage. This was '74. The Rocky Horror yeah. movie was a few years later. So it seems like no no one was stealing ideas from each other. But no, they like, probably developed around the same time, wouldn't they? But yeah. yeah, but like the, the the aesthetic of it is very similar. You know, the <coughs> horror comedy of it, the almost retro look of both of them. Yeah. There's a scene the in Rocky Horror. Camp nature. There's a scene in Rocky Horror yeah. when again a, a a human being is constructed. You know, as this blonde, yeah. bronzed, muscular yeah. man, which is very similar to the way the beef is constructed in the in the yeah. the Phantom. Yeah. Um, Phantom of the Paradise uh, and it just again thinking of Rocky Horror which is obviously not perfect either just seems to be a lot more um, I don't know generous in the way it handles its material it seems to have much more affection for it whereas again you're right but it is Beef is portrayed as what everything wrong with the industry and it seemed to be coming from a point of I don't like this and therefore I'm going to send it up um, rather than yeah. isn't this glorious although he does have some yeah. very glorious yeah. moments on stage 
Yes, uh, no, I agree. Now, I have to say, I've not seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show, so I don't, I can't, I don't have that point of reference. Takes away my surprise for what the next movie's going to be then. <laughs> right, okay. So, uh, because I've not, because I've not seen that film, yeah. I can't comment on the comparisons between the two. Okay. However, I, you know, so uh, there is that. I, 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 I my, when I was looking at films to choose for the for weekend of combis, I was thinking to myself, I, I really, well, we'll come on to that. So I won't, I won't do it in that at the moment. But there was something about this film that appealed to me, um, without having seen Rocky Horror Picture Show. I suppose, I suppose my. my I take your point. This Phantom of the Paradise is a, I think it's a darker, meaner film than Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror is a celebration, and I think Phantom is a satire, um, or it is a cynical piece. Um, And I think that's possibly one of the reasons why Rocky Horror has such a beloved following and Phantom doesn't. And I think it's, I mean, whatever you think of the construction of the film, whether it's a good film or not, I think that, you know, from, from what, from what you've said and from what I know about Rocky Horror, it is not a perfect film. It is a flawed film in the same way that this is a flawed film, but Rocky Horror has garnered a lot of attention and has captured people's imagination because it is positively skewed and it is a, celebration of all of that type of environment and context whereas I think Phantom of the Paradise is the opposite it's a it's a destructive piece yeah it's a piece of cynical intentionally so don't get me wrong I think it is a piece of satire which is about a criticism of the music industry and the idea of artistic integrity whereas Rocky Horror is a celebration of musicality in that period and that's why Rocky Horror despite their similarities in construction and process is the film that's remembered and Phantom has effectively been lost to the annals of time. That's effectively the, the film. That is Phantom of the Paradise. I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit uh, uh, shortly about why I chose Phantom of the Paradise. So, Phantom of the Paradise. Why Phantom of the Paradise? This is a question that Hugh has been asking himself <laughs> for the last month. Um, in many of the same ways that I was asking myself when Hugh recommended Santa Claus the movie in mid-January, which, which, which despite it getting three crombie heads, was one of the most depressing experiences of my life. <laughs> to watch a, a, an overtly Christmas film in, in a week after I'd gone back to work in January. Anyway, nevertheless, nevertheless, Phantom of the Paradise... Um, why, why on earth did I choose this film? Well, first of all, primarily because I'm a big fan of Brian De Palma. Um, I like his style of filmmaking. Not all of his films are great, don't get me wrong. I don't think he's made a particularly good film now for about 25 years, as it happens. But classic Brian De Palma, I think, is one of my... He's one of my favourite directors. I like his um, sensibilities. I like his camera work. I like the way that he builds stories up in a Hitchcockian way. But it's, So there's a lot of homage to, to, to Hitchcock in his films. Uh, I like his split-screen stylistic styles that he does quite a lot in in most of his films in many ways i like the long cuts i like the chaotic energy that he brings to films as well um and this was a particular film that i'd not seen from brian de palma that i had heard had a bit of a cult following and it's in an it's in a period of brian de palma's work which i think you would probably describe as early brian de palma um but certainly not 
his first couple of films, as it were. So he was a well-established director at this point, but hadn't had the, the huge hits that were going to come. So this is pre-Carrie, for example. It's a couple of years before Carrie was, was made. It's... Um, it's pre-blowout with John Travolta, which is the early 80s. It's before The Untouchables was filmed. It's a long time before Carlito's Way, etc. So, you know, it, it, he was probably, he was making his way, he was making a name for himself. And actually, this is one of the films that helped establish his reputation. This is a very well-respected film. This is a very critically acclaimed film in many ways as well. It's certainly of its time. But because of that, I was intrigued to know what it was like. I also was quite, quite keen to see what a Brian De Palma musical might look like. Now I know he you know I know he has this kind of he's got this very over the top style of filmmaking. It's it's an acquired taste. I appreciate that. Very over the top. And I thought what's the most over the top genres of, of of film that you can have? They're musicals and they're horrors. Now Brian De Palma does good a good kind of sense of the horror thriller. He can be quite gruesome in some of his kind of constructions as it were. Really interested to see what he'd do with the musical genre in that context. And I think what it actually probably did was that it went a little bit out of control it ratcheted up his out of controlness in the first instance he is always a director that's a little bit on the edge and perhaps the musical genre tipped him over a little bit into that chaotic process and he lost a bit of focus in that particular area but nevertheless i think for me watching the film i'm glad i've watched it it's an interesting film and it's certainly an interesting um, piece in in the De Palma canon as it were one other thing i will add to it if you've not seen the documentary called De Palma which is I, rather obviously about Brian De Palma. Um, it, I watched it. I think it was about a year ago, um, and it's very simply a documentary where he is facing the camera and he's talking about his films, and it's chronological. So he talks about each of his films in chronological order, and every single one of his films has about five or six minutes of him discussing it in clips from the film. And this is where I first come across Phantom of the Paradise, and so I saw a few clips. I heard him talking really passionately. It's one of his favourite films, and I thought, wow, that looks brilliant. I've never I've never heard of this. You know, I'm a film fan. I'm a Brian De Palma fan. Why have I never heard of Phantom of the Paradise? So that's where that kind of initial thinking came. And it's taken this long for me to actually get round to watching it. So that's why I thought, actually, you know, it's been on my list for a while. Let's watch it as part of Weekend at Crombies. Very good. Uh, speaking of Carrie, I uh, I learned something as I was watching the credits and letting the, the voice of Paul Williams wash me away from the film. Um, <laughs> and it, I'm so peeved. This you could find on IMDb or Wikipedia or something, but I found yeah. it on the credits like a trooper. And that Sissy oh, yeah. Spacek was uh, like a costume yes. uh, yes. or a costume yes. assistant yes. on this film. Yeah. Um, yes, she was. Yes, she was making her bones and just become Carrie. Yeah, yeah, I saw that as well. I thought, wow, I mean, there can't be two Sissy SpaceX, surely. Okay. So that's the reason I chose it. So right. I think, I think that you know, we, we've established the plot. We've got a sense of the analysis. All know why I chose the film. Uh, it was the blessed relief that <laughs> this podcast is over. I don't have to think about Phoenix, uh, um, Phantom of the Paradise anymore. Um, so the next, the next stage is, well, what, what, what are we going to give this film in terms of Crombie heads? So join us for the scores and also to learn what our next film will be. It's now time to rate Phantom of the Paradise using our trusted scale of uh, one from five floating Crombie heads. Um, James, would you like to go first and, and say how many floating Crombie heads you'd assign yeah. it? So I wouldn't want to be presumptuous about this, but I think we're going to have a different opinion here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we may indeed, yeah. yeah. So um, I will tell you 
thoughts first, and then I'll keep the, the, the score, as it were. Um, the ad cap, chaotic, ramshackle, rambunctious, um, insane, nonsensical, non um not very memorable music, dark, macabre, phantom of the paradise, gets a four floating crombie head score from James. That's four floating crombie heads from James. And I actually love the film. I love its campness, its over-the-topness. I love its cheapness. I love its stupidity. I love its insanity. I think it's a great film. So that's four. And what about you, Hugh? <laughs> what, what do you think? Of what do you think the film deserves? <laughs> Let me compose myself for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> How many floating crumbly heads would I give it? Well, I, again, I don't have your sort of film education, and I don't have the, the knowledge of, of Brian De Palma that you do, or um, this kind of thing. So I can only judge the film on whether I enjoyed it or not, and whether I would recommend it to as others. All films, as all films should be judged. Absolutely. It was, again, it's all... It's all um, it's all personal to the to the, the viewer, and I think on that basis, with regret now, I'm going to have to give it one floating crombie head. It oh, is. It is. <laughs> that was what I. That's what I felt when you said four. I thought you were going to give it a three, and that'll be a generous three. One floating crombie head. I did. I, I, there is, I'm afraid there isn't. I can't believe that. One floating crombie head. Um, <laughs> You know, despite all of the nonsense I spoke about about artistic integrity and aesthetic visions that, and that, ma- that, macabre that. ciphers and representations and allegorical, bit, well, you'd still give it a one despite selling it like that. But do you know what? If if, uh, you'd, if you'd made that film that you described to me and given it a good soundtrack, <laughs> I might have given it a higher score. But I didn't. I saw a a a really poorly put together musical the horror no! I, I found off-putting but not enjoyable the comedy was just did not land for me um, I didn't really get a good central performance from anybody I mean again Winslow Leach is not a not a lead actor um, Swan was was good but I, again I didn't get a sinisterness from him uh, I found Phoenix no. drippy I found Beef uh, just offensive um, just a lot of it I did not enjoy whatsoever and it was to be honest yeah. when when the good bits were coming to the end I think and you were getting all this message I was just hanging in there to get to the end um, well at least at least it's not very long it's about 87 minutes, so you didn't it, have to it suffer was, it Was it not long? long? To be honest, you know the bit when Winslow kills himself about 60 minutes in? I thought, is it over? Has he done it? And then he gets up again, and I'm like, oh no, he's not dead! <laughs> well, you, you said, um, uh, if, if, if you'd made that film, the yeah. film that I described, yeah. then you would have enjoyed it. Well, I don't need to make that film, because that film already exists, and it's called Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> I, th- I think this is good. I think this shows that the of uh, the artistic integrity of this podcast that we are not of one mind and we are free to disagree and see the same film of course, different yeah. eyes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the rich tapestry of life, the rich tapestry Absolutely. of life, because of that. And so, um, indeed, one of the reasons I invited you to, ne- to choose films as as I do is because I know you'll pick films that I have never heard of and would never choose to see. And sometimes, and oft times, that is to my betterment. <laughs> and occasionally, I'll watch Phantom of the Paradise. 
Yeah. And now, and yeah. I think if ever I've heard a backhanded compliment, <laughs> uh, that is it. Um, right, the reason fine. why we wanted to do the podcast was because I knew that I would watch films that you chose that I would never normally watch. That's Thank a, you for that's, that. That's yeah. a good thing. My job here is done. You have made some fantastic <laughs> recommendations of films I would never normally watch. Um, and, <laughs> and some I, terrible I, ones. And I've enjoyed most of them. <laughs> Uh, however, now now there's a lot of pressure on me for for the next film because I, 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 I doubt if what I'm about to suggest will have this kind of artistic integrity, uh, great pedigree. But I think, uh, but as we will discuss in a month's time, I think it's a film that's um, that's worth that's worth analysing at least. It's been a lot of since I last saw it. The film that we shall next be reviewing will be Quigley Down Under. Ah, Quigley Down Under. Quigley Down Under, the Tom, yes. the Tom Selleck Cowboy Australia f- uh, movie. We'll say no more from that. We, yep. will, uh, we will acquire a copy of each, and we will review Quigley Down yep. Under. And Lovely. Well, I look forward to the Quigley Down Under March extravaganza. Indeed. And uh, I think that we're done now. We'll uh, hopefully make it into time. We'll see how the edit goes. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll just... Yeah. We might get it down to about... 27 minutes this time. Yeah, certainly no longer than Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> no, it certainly felt longer than Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> Enjoy your Ciao. weekend at Crombie. Evening all.